Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. When people are not allowed to use the bathroom that they feel most comfortable with, it really can be quite devastating to a person's self-esteem. Transgendered individuals, like everybody else, they just want to get into the bathroom, do their business, and get out. And so when such a big deal is made out of it, it can be really quite difficult for young people to have to navigate. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Drew. On this edition of Outcasting, we consider transgender youth who want to start medical transition at a relatively early age. Of course, parents often worry that their children may be too young to know what they really want. The medical transitions may include surgery and other medical treatments that can be difficult or impossible to undo. So what's the best answer? What options are available to transgender youth? Are there benefits to starting transition early? Are there disadvantages? And what kinds of considerations go into making these decisions? To begin to answer some of these questions, Outcaster Lauren talks with Dr. John Stever, a physician, and Dr. Matthew Oransky, a psychologist. Both doctors work at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York and help young transgender people with transitioning. This is part one of a series. Dr. John Stever, Dr. Matthew Oransky, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. It's great to be with you guys. Dr. John Stever, do you work primarily with transgender patients? I would say that about a third of my medical practice is working with transgender and gender nonconforming youth, so yes. And Dr. Aransky? Yeah, I would say at this point, oh, 50 to 75% of the youth I work with identify as transgender, gender nonconforming, and then I also do a lot of supervision of other therapists working with transgender youth. What made you interested in working primarily with transgender patients? Dr. Stever? It really stems from a uh, social justice background. I felt like this was a group of individuals who were not being served by the medical community and wanted to work with a population that needed high quality medical care. And so I got started working with gender nonconforming youth probably about a decade ago. That's really great. Dr. Aransky? Yeah, my answer is pretty similar to Dr. Stever. I've always been interested in working with individuals who were underserved in the general medical profession. I've also been, I've had a lifelong interest in working with LGBT individuals. And I think particularly amongst youth populations, it's very hard for trans youth to find affirming care. So I was really interested in um, working at a place that provided that. You mentioned that transgender youth often have difficulty getting the health care that they need. Why is this? 
I think there's a number of barriers. I think sometimes the barrier can be their own family. If they're not out to their family, they have trouble accessing services without their parents' permission. And then I think in terms of therapists or psychologists, I'm a psychologist, there's a lack of training and working with trans youth. And so the professionals may do things that are not very affirming, which then is a deterrent for the youth seeking care. I also think that there's particular barriers to care for transgender youth who don't have resources, as sometimes care requires insurance or the ability to pay on your own without insurance. How long have you been working with trans people, Dr. Stever? Probably since the uh, late 90s initially, and then in a much more serious and focused way, really in the last 10 years. So I've been doing this for a while and, you know, feel like I've got some experience with it now. And Dr. Aransky? I have been working with trans individuals for about a decade, but in a much more focused way for the last five to six years. What is it like working with transgender individuals, Dr. Stevert? It is incredible to work with transgender individuals. I mean, of course, you can't make completely gross generalizations. A lot of these youth have come to us from very widely different backgrounds. And many of them, as Dr. Ransky can talk about, often have been traumatized from their backgrounds. And so some youth come to us and are quite optimistic and are very forward-looking. And others, of course, come to us with very guarded and can be a challenge to draw out. So, you know, like all groups of people, some of them are a delight to work with and others can be a bit of a challenge. But that's sort of what makes a lot of this so much fun is you, you sort of never know who's going to walk through your door and what kind of uh, story that they're going to tell. Dr. Aransky? Again, I know this is a generalization, but it's been one of the highlights of my career and my life so far. I think the ability to provide services to people who have not just been overlooked, but have been pushed down or oppressed in our society has been really personally gratifying. I think I feel particularly honored that some of these kids let me into their life and trust me with their stories and let me work with them. I think particularly as I mean, I'm a cisgender man, and so I don't have a firsthand experience, and I really sort of value that a lot of the youth that I work with trust me with their stories and to kind of be one of the guides on their journey. We've covered transgender issues from a number of perspectives on Outcasting, and all of our coverage is available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. But in a minute or so, take us through the very basics of what it means to be transgender. You know, I think in the broadest possible sense, the term transgender refers to someone whose gender identity does not match the sex assigned at birth. So the way that we often use this term today is that it's really an umbrella term for anyone who fits under that kind of like broad definition. Dr. Stever, any additional perspective? Matt's right. There's a lot that is going on. These kids end up having to question a very fundamental part of their being in a way that many people don't. And so 
the courage it takes to question your gender, to question that sense of being in the wrong body, that there's something wrong. It's really quite amazing and powerful. And so I, I think it's not an easy thing that these youth have to focus on. So I would certainly say that working with them as Matt points out, is really an honor and a privilege because they are working on something that is very fundamental to their core being. Gender dysphoria is something transgender people experience due to the conflict between their physical sex and their gender identity. Can you describe what this experience is like, Dr. Stever? I would say that that experience probably initially is a little bit like a splinter. You know, when you get a small, tiny splinter in your finger, at first you can't quite figure out what it is, but you know that something hurts. And then as time goes by, you gradually figure out that there is something wrong, that there is a splinter there, and then you can actually do something with it. So there is sort of a you know, it's not an automatic like, oh, I have a headache, I need to go see a medical person. Sometimes just naming it is a challenge. And so I've, I've used that description of a, a splinter uh, often, and that seems to ring true for many, many youth. Dr. Aransky, do you have anything to add? I think that what's important to note is that gender dysphoria is the distress someone feels due to the conflict between their physical sex and gender identity. The gender dysphoria is not the conflict, but it's the distress they feel about that conflict. And I think it's it can it can really vary from person to person to be incredibly an incredible, incredibly intense amount of daily nonstop distress to something that isn't felt with as much intensity. One of the things that sort of always hits home to me is that young people I work with who feel this just sort of ongoing, really intense dysphoria or distress due to this mismatch between their body and their gender identity. And someone will come out as transgender and people, all they think about is that the person in front of them is going to quote unquote change their gender. But what they're not thinking about is the like immense lived experience of distress that they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And I know in the work that I do is often in helping teenagers come out to or explain this to their parents or caregivers. And that is something that I often feel like is important for the parents to understand that your child is not just sort of coming out to you as this different identity from what you expected, but there's this actual feeling of daily distress. How do you diagnose gender dysphoria, and are there different criteria for people who are female to male and male to female? You know, gender dysphoria is a diagnosis in the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic manual for psychiatric diagnoses. So really, at a very base level, you're like looking to see that someone meets these criteria that are laid out by this manual. But the techniques that we use pretty straightforward. You can do it through a clinical interview. So questions regarding their felt daily experience and the history of their experience, and then their 
there's also a few scales people can fill out just to rate their experience. For example, like how much the distress they feel about their body parts or, you know, what kind of distress they feel if they're gendered incorrectly by someone else. So it's really through an interview or a few self-report measures. Dr. Stever, do you want to answer that also? Yeah, I, I would agree agree with Dr. Aransky that um, it is a uh, diagnosis by interview. There is no medical lab test or uh, imaging study or biopsy that will determine one's, you know, gender concordance or gender discordance. I bring that up just because sometimes that is a question that parents have is how do you know is there a test that can be done and the answer is no it really is by interviewing and talking and getting to know the youth that you can make that diagnosis how can gender dysphoria be treated or lessened dr stever well there's uh, a lot of ways that can be treated and and i think this is one of those moments where we really focus on what does the individual person want. So as Dr. Ransky alluded to, some people are very, uh, you know, their gender dysphoria is very acute. Every time they turn the lights on in the bathroom and see that their body does not match their brain, they're very upset, very depressed, you know, even to the point of feeling uh, suicidal. And then other people are just only mildly like, oh, that doesn't really match how I see myself. So when you're talking about treating it, you really have to ask the patient, what would work for you? Are you the kind of person that's going to need like multiple medications, multiple surgeries, or is this just something we're going to talk about a little bit and you're going to change some things about yourself to to treat your gender dysphoria? Some people are quite happy with very simple things and other people really want much more aggressive treatment. So at the end of the day, when you're talking about treating or decreasing gender dysphoria, a lot of it has to do with the individual person and what they would like. So there's no you know, this is how it's done. It really is talking to the individual and getting a sense of what they need and then how can I help with that? Dr. Aransky? Yeah, I agree with Dr. Stever. I mean, there's no set in stone individual path. It really depends on what the dysphoria is originating from. Very briefly, though, some of the options are so you know involve social transition, which is more informing people around you of your gender identity and sort of name and pronouns you'd like to use. And then there's medical interventions such as hormone therapy or surgery. What does bear mentioning, I think, is that things like reparative therapy do not work and can cause more damage. So we really take a gender-affirming approach to treating gender dysphoria, which means affirming the asserted gender of the person we're working with. What other kinds of dysphoria and insecurity um, can transgender youth have about themselves? Dr. Ransky? I hate to reduce people to like categories, 
but um, it, it can really run the gamut. One of the things that we'll often do is people often come to us because they're interested in transitioning and we're so happy to help with that. But part of what we can do is help them actually understand which is the thing that's most distressing. And sometimes it's a physical attribute, like your voice. Other times it's height or the shape of different parts of your body. People will talk about top dysphoria or bottom dysphoria, jawline, Adam's apple, hand size. It can really run the gamut. Um, but then other times dysphoria is more about... Um, is actually in some youth is less about actually like the way my body looks, but being treated in an affirming way by others, if that makes sense. So it's about like social treatment, respecting who I am, using the right pronoun, letting me in the bathroom that is right for me, and less about actually like looking at my body every day. It can be really different depending on the person. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. Produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Lauren is talking with Dr. John Stever, a physician, and Dr. Matthew Oransky, a psychologist, about the issues faced by transgender youth when they want to begin medical transition. Both Dr. Stever and Dr. Oransky work at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Oransky, you mentioned bathrooms. Can you talk briefly about the effect that regressive bathroom and locker room bills have on trans youth? I think that when it directly affects young people, it um, can be quite terrifying to not be allowed to use the bathroom that is appropriate for you. I mean, I think on just sort of like a daily basis, it can engender a lot of fear. Say you have to go to the bathroom. You know, we mostly work with high school students. Say you have to go to the bathroom in high school and you can't use the bathroom that aligns with your gender, then you, every time you want to go to the bathroom, you're running the risk of being somehow outed or running the risk of being faced with violence. And then your other option is to not go to the bathroom at all, which can be painful and damaging in its, in its own right. But it sends, I think, a larger message that the society is not treating you with respect, that you're going to continue to face marginalization and can really impact your sense of hope for the future, especially at this crucial age where people are, you know, developing their identity and like planning for, you know, an adult life. So I think it can be quite damaging. And part of the reason I say this is that I run a support group for trans youth. And every week, I feel that one of the topics that always comes up, especially these days, is some new policy that's been passed or proposed. And even if it's on the other side of the country, it definitely is sending a lot of fear towards the young people that we work with. Dr. Stever? I agree. I mean, when people are, you know, not allowed to use the bathroom that they feel most comfortable with or facilities they don't that they don't feel most comfortable with it really can be quite devastating to a person's self-esteem transgendered individuals like everybody else they just want to get into the bathroom do their business and get out and so when such a big deal is made out of it it can be really quite difficult for young people to have to navigate and when it's you know sort of codified in to law then that is saying something to a young person. It's really saying that 
the state and uh, local and government officials who are supposed to be sort of protecting you are really not protecting you and they're really not supportive. And I think that that's an extremely difficult position for a young person to uh, have to deal with. An earlier outcasting guest, the transgender activist Julie Gray Owens, described how trans people might bring harmony to their lives. She likened the journey to a train trip. For some people, it might be enough to get off at the first stop, which she said might be presenting yourself publicly in the gender you identify in. If that isn't enough, she said, a person could get back on the train and take it to the next stop, which might be hormone therapy, and so forth until the final stop of the train, which would be a full medical transition, including surgery. How do you treat transgender patients? Do some know right away that they want full medical transition? Dr. Stever? Uh, I make it a habit uh, the first time I meet somebody to ask them how they see their transition going. You know, what do they see in the next few months, years down the line? Because I need to sort of have an idea about where they're going. And you're correct. There are some people who you know, would like a few things. There are other people who would like the whole uh, nine yards. Uh, And so, again, everybody is different, and you have to ask the patient and individualize your treatment program to that individual person and what they want. And sometimes, you know, because this field is relatively new and many of our youth are getting information about medical transitioning from the internet, from sources that may or may not uh, have evidence that backs up their assertions, I spend time trying to explain what I can and, and sometimes what I cannot do for somebody. So for example, somebody may say, you know, I want a full beard and uh, I don't want to lose the hair on top of my head. And, you know, and that's, that's what I want. And I will have to explain to them that Sometimes the way testosterone works is it's, you know, in conjunction with your own genetics. And so if your family is not particularly uh, hirsute or hairy, you're not likely to get a full thick beard. Uh, And I can't predict, you know, and I can't guarantee that I can give you a nice full beard and at the same time ensure that you don't lose, you know, the hair on top of your head. So you know, we have these discussions a fair amount. Uh, estrogen is another one where people talk about, you know, oh, I'll start estrogen and my voice will lighten. And I have to say, no, actually, the data says that estrogen will not lighten your voice, that we need to, if that's a, a focus that you want, we need to talk about uh, vocal training and uh, maybe even one of the vocal cord tightening procedures. Dr. Uransky? I agree. Uh, you know, Dr. Doctor, Doctor Steve and I work very closely together, so I'm glad to see we're on the same page. Um, uh, I agree, you know, and I, I like the analogy of the train. I think that, you know, like most things in life, that this can be a journey that people discover as they go. Um, and we like to take it one step at a time with our patients, you know, asking them at the outset, what do you see in store for your transition, if you are so inclined, and then, you know, continually check in about what are you thinking now, what are you thinking is next, what are the pros and cons, and, you know, 
stay involved almost if there's no other significant mental health issues stay stay along for the ride as a guide you know to help to help bounce off to be someone they can bounce the ideas off of and people are allowed to change um i've had people come in and you know their initial visit said they want x y and z and for example i've had people say oh absolutely not i'm not interested in surgery at all and then after a period of time they reevaluate that and say oh you know actually i think having male chest reconstruction also known as top surgery uh would be right for me and how do i set that up and how do i you know get a referral for that and i can try and help them with that so just because somebody starts out with uh what they see as a clear path we like to feel like we can be flexible and help them as their needs change over time we can help them with what they're interested in do you always try counseling before starting medical transition that's a sort of a tricky interesting question i feel like because i work with youth anywhere from my youngest patient is about eight years old and of course my oldest is 24 when they age out of our program I feel that it is important that youth of all ages be in some counseling to confirm the diagnosis of gender dysphoria and that mental health practitioners help me make sure that this person has a reasonable understanding of what the future may bring to them. So I do ask for mental health involvement. I do not require that they stay in counseling, though I think for many youth to have somebody bounce ideas off of or to, you know, help win those moments where somebody has misgendered them, that it's often very useful. But, I, you know, I feel like people should be able to make up their minds themselves about how much counseling or therapy they want or don't want. Dr. Aransky? I agree with John. You know, we work together very closely. And in our program, we require mental health contact only insofar as to get a diagnosis of gender dysphoria and make sure that the young person can provide informed consent to the transition process. But we don't have any kind of set requirement for ongoing therapy. Let's talk about transitioning for young people. What are the advantages and disadvantages of beginning medical transition at an early age? Dr. Aransky, let's start with you. Well, I think medical providers will begin cross-gender hormones around age 14, maybe 15. You know, one of the advantages is that it will set someone more on course in terms of undergoing the correct puberty as close as possible to their peer group. So from a social and developmental perspective, that's an advantage. The quote-unquote medical transition can start, you know, as young as around 10 if you're also including the puberty blockers, which will forestall the typical puberty that that person was going to go through. You know, it often 
starting at that young of an age often can lead to a physical transition that is more quote-unquote passable than someone who starts after already going through the puberty that their body was going to biologically put them through. I don't see that many disadvantages to beginning early um, because sort of someone who begins as young as 14 is kind of going through the evaluations necessary to make sure that this is the correct course of action. And, you know, we don't have any clinical or research data to suggest that starting at that young age then like leads to some kind of regret later on. We're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there until the next edition of Outcasting. Outcaster Lauren has been talking with Dr. Matthew Oransky, a psychologist, and Dr. John Stever, a physician. Both doctors work at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. This has been part one of a series on transgender youth and early medical transition. Tune in again next time for part two. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Alex, Andrea, Dante, Lauren, Lucas, Max, Nico, Quinn, and me, Dhruv. Our assistant producer is Josh Valley, and our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Dhruv. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.